Hey, hello, and welcome to this week's TES podcast. Uh, I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Caroline Henshaw. Hello. Hiya. Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Hi. And Ed Doll. Hello, Ed. Hello, hello. So, um, it's half term for many people around the country, but the news never stops at TES Towers. Never stops. Relentless. Never stops. Relentless. Um, so, let's relentlessly start off <laughs> with um, a story about um, academies. Whose story is this, Martin? Mine. <laughs> and it's a very good story, isn't it, Ed? It's a corker. Absolutely. Tell us more. <laughs> well, um, I've been looking at the number of uh, applications for uh, to become Academy sponsors. And over the last two academic years, there's been a 40% drop in the number of applications coming in. The numbers being approved have similarly fallen. And particularly notably, we've had no new applications approved from either the business sector or the charitable sector, despite ministers for a long time, and recently as well, really wanting to see people from that sector come forward and sponsor schools. Mm -hmm. um, now go on, no, go on. I was going to say, I mean, I half wondered whether this was sort of topical or not when I first tried to get the information, because under Justin Green, the academies had kind of gone to the background a bit. Yeah. But the last two or three weeks, Damien Hines has been having a real public push for more academies, yeah. for more free schools to become academies, for more people to become sponsors of free schools. Mm. So do these figures show that this, this new political push from the DFE is in real trouble before it's begun even? I mean, it, was quite, it has been predicted that it's been coming for a while. I'm not saying so. To be clear, it's a great story. But of course. people have been worrying for a while about a shortage of uh, um, yep. potential mats, haven't they? Um, I think I think that... that in the stuff that you've you've written, the interesting point is that there are lots and lots of academy trusts out there that, that um, have been talked about uh, about expanding to take on. You know, if, if if more schools do want to become academies, but as you've rightly pointed out, if you're like a four, kind of four or five school trust and you've just got together some local schools, you're not necessarily the kind of map that's trying to build some great nationwide empire or even expand to 20 or 30 so so for lots of those just to say because it was it was a prelude to people preparing for compulsory economization wasn't right it? yeah so so they they did that as local solutions but i guess the government is now going to have to rely on those local solutions becoming um more regional ones or, or much bigger if yeah. they want the schools to do it there is a deep-seated you just need to go out and about and talk to people there's a deep-seated antipathy amongst many of those <coughs> small and small, medium-sized mats to grow, um, which, is, which is interesting in and of itself because there are strong arguments, aren't there, about what uh, the economies of scale should look like in a mat model. Mm. So not only is there a shortage of mats, but or a shortage of people who want to take on schools, but actually a lot of people say small mats are not an effective way of running schools. Do you think becoming an academy a, a, with a single school trust is, is seen as an option anymore? I haven't looked at the stats. I mean, I've got the impression for a couple of years that it, it's very rare now. And looking through all the head teacher board papers, you see a lot of single academy trusts converting to become multi academy trusts. Mm -hmm. I don't see many new single academy trusts being approved. Um, I think that that's been a, a shift for a while, hasn't it? Um, a lot of people recognise, especially in the primary sector, that, that it really isn't sustainable or wise mm. to be a standalone primary academy. The, the financial constraints are such that that. That it, that's a really expensive way of running your school because obviously you get no economies of scale and also you're incredibly isolated 
So you're right, I never, I haven't heard for ages about a single primary academy trust for sure. Mm. That's very rare. What about this idea that, that, I mean, you think back to the very first days of the academies movement, you know, New Labour, it was about often private sector coming in, taking over a failing secondary school and bringing that, using that public sector ethos to turn things around. Private sector. Private sector, private ethos, sector yeah. yeah. Um, and so the ministers have, have remained wedded to that, and yet it's not happening, is it? To be honest, it was, it was dressed up as that. But I mean, it was just get, it, it's like a lot of these things, it's kind of badge engineering, you know, it, it, it's get, maybe maybe there were some exceptions that that where, where the sponsor really did get involved, but a, a, a lot of the time it was, it was put a name on it and mm. then it, and then it was allowed, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're still, they're still essentially being run by, by head teachers, so. But it's obviously something they are still wedded to, isn't it? Because that was the other part of what th that you wrote about about these huge efforts that that government has been going to 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 reach businesses to to get them involved. Well, I mean, basically, what you've got is yet more evidence of this really funny sense of stasis in in the education landscape, don't you? That this this model is half cooked. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not saying uh, by any stretch that I think full academisation is definitely the answer. But we have this really weird system at the moment, don't we, where in some areas like Gloucestershire, almost all primary schools are still local authority maintained. Then you go to other areas where there's loads of single academy trusts and other areas where there are big maps that are dominant. And it's just a really weird, frankly, unsatisfactory system, mm. which is very hard to make sense of, unless, of course, you're Martin George analysing it forensically. And I still don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it's the system we're, we're stuck with. Yeah. I mean, unless something radical happened, I'd be very surprised if anyone made a really meaningful push into full academisation anytime soon. We can get it through Parliament, could well, you? Well, exactly. Mm. Um, even if you could, I'm not sure there's much interest in that. And there's certainly very little interest in going back. So there's a rolling so, back. So this is, this is the odd, hybrid, mixed economy system that English education is going to be, I think, for yeah. a period of time. Just run out of petrol on the way. Yeah. Stuck. Yeah, yeah. it kind yeah. of feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Money, well, it's kind of, of like that like with school accountability, isn't it? Sorry to go into another huge thing, but, mm. but but the same thing, like policies that have been working towards for ages, just kind of, they've had to back away from because they, <laughs> they don't really work, but there's nothing else has really come in its place. Yeah. Fizzle out. Fizzle out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Caroline. Um, <laughs> Always a happy result. note on this podcast. <laughs> moving on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to knife crime. Yep. Um, so, Caroline, I mean, th this has been in, in the news a lot over the past 12 months or so. Mm. Um, and you've done a really sort of in-depth dig into knife crime and schools. I think you found that, that there are no easy answers and perhaps things that people think we know, perhaps we don't actually know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting one. I think, you know, as you say, you'd have to be living under a rock, really, to not have heard about rising knife crime rates. And we had some stats very recently showing that um, it's uh, in England and Wales at its highest point since records began in 1946. Um, and we've also seen a lot of stats out of London showing how it's impacting younger and younger people. And you hear lots of... Uh, maybe not hyperbolic but you you hear lots of headlines about you know very young children being caught with knives taking yeah. knives to school the idea of the wild west in parts of the country so we hear a lot about it but i think the thing that really struck me researching this feature was how little of that was really based on very solid research and and talking to people um they were saying that 
you know, the, the landscape is changing very fast and a lot of people don't really have a handle on how things are happening. So, for example, we hear a lot that exclusions are behind uh, the rise in knife crime. But when you look at it, it's quite difficult to find what exactly that link might be. We have people saying, well, um, you know, that the, there aren't enough places in PRUs and so young people are kind of left out on the street and that seems plausible, doesn't it? But then you have another study from the Ministry of Justice showing that kids who are exclude, who, um, who have been caught with knives very few of them have recently been excluded. I thought that was really striking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Is, yeah. And, 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 you know, similarly, um, when it comes to tackling it, a lot of it seems to be ideological. You have people coming out, um, you know, we had the Home Secretary come out recently and come out with knife prevention orders for children as young as 12 and they can be barred from social media, kind of like an ASBO mm. associated with knife crime. And then on the other end, uh, sort of towards the other end of the scale, you have um, people saying, well, this kind of zero tolerance approach, two strikes and you're outlaw that came in 2015, this doesn't work. And we have Ofsted, which um, in the spring will study its, uh, will publish its own research on this. Um, but you had the um, Ofsted's, uh, one of their, uh, Mark Lehane coming out and saying that actually gangs are exploiting these ideas of zero tolerance policies to be able to get kids excluded so that they become part of gangs. So Mike, Mike Sheridan. Um, well, there's the yeah, so oh, Mike sorry. Sheridan, yeah, yeah, yeah. from Ofsted. Um, so you, yeah, sorry, there you go. <laughs> two two very different people. So you yes. have very, um, really you have uh, so you have really different kind of opposite opinions, and and I think the thing that was really interesting in this is how how little in some cases is known, and and I think that's why. Um, I wanted to give the example of Scotland and Glasgow, which kind of famously has, has mm. been very good at reducing knife crime and, and looking kind of in depth at what they've done there in schools. And, and the thing that really struck me was that first we have to take this kind of what they call the, the health policy approach. So you have to look at lots of different things. You can't say, oh, well, just schools or just police or whatever. You can't take things in isolation. You have to look at it in the big picture. But then also talking a lot about the idea you have to give kids ownership of these kind of things. It's not about new and shiny policies. It's not like someone gets funding, turns up, does a few weeks of teaching and then leaves. It's about giving young people ownership of this. It's about letting them discuss it themselves. It's about finding ways to bring in kids who maybe wouldn't normally sit around and, and talk about this stuff and getting them involved. And that's been far more successful than, than many other policies out there. So I think it's... I think my, my, if you answer, ask the question which, which this feature was intended to do, what can schools do about this, it's really not very clear, but you can. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really, no one really seems to know, but you can. You, I think the main thing you have to do is give the, the pupils themselves uh, the ownership of trying well, to find the answers. I think that you did is, I know you went to a recent conference where mm. actually teenagers themselves spoke. Mm. It wasn't just adults speaking mm. on their behalf or about them. Mm. I mean, what were sort of things that, that you were hearing from young people themselves. Absolutely. Well, yeah, this was very striking is that um, while the, you know, you speak to a, a police chief and they'll say it's all about big cuts, it's all about the big things, when the young people stood up and talk about either their own experiences or the family's experiences, um, they, they, they said it was about having teachers who believed in them. They, it was very human. It was saying uh, that a lot of, uh, all of them were sort of young black men in their, in their teenage years and they stood up and said, you know, I want a teacher who sees the best in me who believes that I can make something of myself and and who sets those really high standards um, and I spoke to a, a, an academic who works um, with with young teenage boys and and his argument was that they are people fear them people police them and and they learn very quickly that they're sort of not 
catered for within the system. So I think um, for teachers it's very important to uh, remember that you have to believe in every student and, and give them all a chance and and uh, maybe that's maybe that's the way forward. <coughs> Blimey. I, th I, <laughs> I thought there was loads of interesting things in me, mm. but, um, but I think it was the fact that in because you hear Glasgow being um, you know seen as, as a solution because yeah. it, it worked so well there and they were where we were where we are in in London now ten years ago, and it it was what you brought out about the school stuff because that doesn't usually come across, mm. does it? It's no. usually like. They talk about a combination of police and treating it like a health thing, but obviously from what you found out, schools were quite an important part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where, you know, where understanding that the fearful approach, that going to a young person and saying, if you do this, then you'll end up in jail. Well, the point that was made um, is that a lot of the people who end up being drawn into these gangs into situations where they get involved in knife crime they will have seen that already they know exactly what the results of this will look like and that's what yeah, they've been living around their whole life so a fear-based approach won't work it's about um offering new options it's about giving mm -hmm. people a chance mm -hmm. and it's about saying you can achieve if you try mm. going back so you think or your, your research has found that there is largely very little um evidence and by which I mean actual hard evidence um, to link the rise in exclusions with the rise in knife crime. Because we were talking about before, when we, mm. um, I find it really interesting how I think it's probably as little as nine months ago that I first heard that causal, or that link presented as causal. Mm. And, um, and it's amazing how fast it's taken hold in the public kind of consciousness, isn't it? I think, I so there are some reports. There was one for the, um, uh, for by Bernardo's, um, for the all-parliamentary, committee on knife crime and that was saying you know people get excluded and people um, so young people get excluded there aren't enough spaces in PRUs and even then maybe their attendance isn't very well monitored so then they end up on the street and and it, I'm not saying there isn't a causal link but um, when you actually read the research the the saying okay this person was excluded and now they're getting involved in knife crime that that research I could not that, find that, much that of. remains a link yeah exactly I think often there are there are maybe underlying assumptions which have been repeated enough that they feel like facts. And I'm personally, I'm not sure that there's enough research done to understand how this all works yet. And um, um, Mark Burns Williamson, who um, is, the, is a very senior chief um, police officer and sits on the Home Secretary's um, anti-knife crime sort of policy uh, committee, he, he said the same thing, that there's simply not enough data out there for them to quite understand how this is working yet. I think that's just isn't it? If we don't understand what's driving the problem, how do you then address it? Exactly. And and again, on that note, like you say, the the hearing young people and hearing the huge disparity between the way that they talk about it and the way that, you know, the people at the top talk about it, that really kind of hit home that often it's the young people who don't really get asked about this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they don't get enough the people who are being involved in knife crime don't really get much of a say in <laughs> what the problems are. Yeah, a huge amount of food for thought there. Mm. Um, we can't end without talking about the big political story of the week, as we obviously the uh, independent group of MPs has been formed. Um, we're recording this. We, yeah, um, we're recording this on Thursday. We'll be broadcast on Friday, by which time who knows how many MPs will be in it. <laughs> um, do we think Justin Greening <coughs> or Nicky Morgan will be independent MPs by the time we publish this podcast? There are indications, aren't there, that they're interest, they're interested, and Justin Greening certainly hinted that way 
this morning. Mm. I guess for our core audience, the question is, I suppose, what would conceivably a TIG education policy look like? And it does sort of feel like it would be the pro another pro academization party, doesn't it? Well, if Justin Greening was in it, it'd have a lot to do with social mobility, wouldn't it? Yeah, it yeah. Would, You'd sure. expect her to be, she's been the one that's been most involved in education, so she'd be, um, when she was talking on the radio today, she was pushing that. Definitely, yeah. Um, we talked about it earlier, actually, didn't we, about the, about the early days of the Academy's movement under Blair. Mm. And, you know, m not all, but most of the uh, Labour <coughs> MPs who've moved are kind of, could be characterised, I guess, as Blairites. Mm. So... Yeah, I mean, and looking, we might see a return to that kind of uh, message. Yeah, I mean, looking at the uh, sort of biographies of, of the, the original seven Labour defectors, I think more than half of them have education listed among their priorities. So it's an issue that yeah, they might well form some policies on. And you yeah. think of some of the um, you know, ex-DFE ministers, people like um, Nicky Morgan, Justin Greening, Sam Gima, yeah. Joe Johnson, they're all potentially people who could, over Brexit, defect to, to this yeah. new grouping and, and if so you'd have four pretty you know strong education um, voices voices and to chuck one more name into that mix um this is to be fair rampant speculation but um jeff mulgan who listeners might recognize as a former number 10 policy director under blair um has just left nesta his job since then and there is speculation out there he was one of the people behind the canonization that he might go and work for this group oh right okay That'll be interesting. That'll be a, a straw in the wind, wouldn't it? Indeed. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they come up with some positive policies. Those na Labour's take on this has been very negative. So it's whether they'll actually lay out some plans and, and say this is what we think and what we stand actually, for. We will do this yeah. rather than we won't do that or yeah, we'll exactly. undo that. Yeah. Well, tune in next week to, to find out. <laughs> 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 Thanks for listening.